Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, for our last episode before a little summer break, and don't worry, we will be back early September, we thought that we would answer a few questions from our listeners. We asked for questions, and you sent them. So with me, the one and only John Stefik, obviously, and throughout this episode, we're going to be joined by some of our Bloomberg colleagues who are going to help us out with the answers. So no chit-chat today. You don't want to listen to me and John. You want to listen to us, our expert contributors. So let's get on with it. So our first question today is one that I think is probably on everybody's minds. And if it isn't on your mind, it probably should be. Why doesn't the Bank of England engage in aggressive QT, quantitative tightening, rather than just shoving up interest rates? Surely QT by reducing the money supply is a far faster mechanism to reduce inflation than the lagged effect of interest rates. So remember that the effect of interest rates happens only over a year, 18 months, possibly longer, which only affects variable rate mortgages and rolled over loans. Now, with us to answer this question or help us answer this question, should I say, is friend of the show, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. Marcus, why not just do a little QT and be done with the whole thing? Ha. Well, at first, I don't think uh, QE or QT necessarily has any direct effect on the money supply, but that's move aside from that point, because that's sort of in the weeds. The, the point is, is that why would you reducing, therefore selling back to the market, uh, your massive stock of, of bonds when interest rates are significantly higher, yields are sometimes three or 400 basis points higher than before, i.e. therefore the price is an awful lot lower. Now, when rates are at five, you should have done it when rates are at zero. So. My whole problem with the Bank of England, well, many, but the, certainly the, big, the biggest one was, was why, thanks, John, uh, was why <laughs> they decided to uh, go ahead with interest rate hikes before they reduced the amount of, uh, of quantitative easing purchases. I mean, they shouldn't have done the last lot of quantitative easing buying, you know, through the pandemic. That was They kept it on for, for way, way, way longer than they needed to. As the then chief economist, Andy Haldane, uh, made very clear and an effect sort of left the building because of it. So not only do I think they shouldn't have carried on with QE as long as they did, but however, they should have got on with QT right at the beginning and done much more QT, quantitative tightening, before they even started with interest rate hikes, because it has just cost the taxpayer possibly hundreds, I do mean hundreds of billions of pounds. I mean, I'm reading estimates uh, at least 250 billion, if not higher, 
It was in the papers yesterday at 150 billion, I think. And again, you know, that took me aback slightly. I knew there'd be costs, but I hadn't really taken into account quite how high the costs of QT would be for the taxpayer, that the, that the state would be compensating the Bank of England for all these losses. Yeah, but the bank has paid the Treasury uh, over 100 billion because they've had uh, lovely coupon income and various things up till now. It's just reversing it back an extraordinary rate. Just at the actions in the last couple of weeks where they've sold some very long dated bonds back in the market have cost over a billion pounds. Just that in each each operation, whereby the price they paid for the bond was over 100. The price they've sold it back to the market is below 50. They've taken a huge loss and it's not even really being reported on. It's not even being recognized. This is directly costing the, the taxpayer. They should not be selling very long dated bonds when interest rates are as high as five percent and, and more are probably going to be more it just makes no sense they should calm down it stop it the passive quantitative tiny whereby they don't reinvest their existing holdings keep that up that's great that makes perfect sense it's just the active bit then what happens to the rest of it you think it should just stay there on the bank of england balance sheet until it rolls off it will roll off anyway at about 40 billion per year. Next year, next financial year, it will be closer to 70 billion if they do nothing, which is what scared the market even more when Ramsden, uh, Deb Ramsden, uh, Deputy Governor, came out and said he, they were thinking of upping the active amount to perhaps over to up, bring the total to over 100 billion, which is just, it's just madness. So, you know, what they need to do is is just set on the passive quantitative thing, just like the Fed's doing, just like the ECB's starting to doing. The only one that's doing active is the Bank of England. They are costing the taxpayer literally billions and billions of pounds, and they don't seem to care. In your view, Marcus, so is this one reason why the gilts market has been somewhat wobblier, arguably, than the Treasury or the, or the, the Bund market, for example? Because you've got you know, lest people forget, well, this is also happening at a time when most governments around the world need lots more money anyway. So we're going from a time when government bond markets have been relatively tight because they've had a huge buyer of last resort in the form of central banks. And now suddenly the buyer of last resort is turned into the seller of the, <laughs> a price insensitive seller, um, just as governments are needing to raise a lot more money. Correct. They are competing directly with the debt management office, which is having to sell the most gilts ever. The fact the Bank of England has turned from the biggest buyer to now being a very active seller competing with the government just makes it worse. Now, you can't just blame the Bank of England. You know, the government shouldn't be borrowing quite so much money, perhaps. But as they simply won't refuse to cut spending, it's not to the Bank of England's role to make the situation worse. And they are making it worse. I mean, right on just before the quasi Quarteng, uh famous mini-budget, the Bank of England made the decision to go ahead with active quantitative tightening and raise interest rates. It somehow managed to slide away from any form of the blame. They are continuing to sell guilt actively every week, competing with the debt management office, and they're doing it in a manner which is just keeping yields in the UK significantly higher than US Treasuries and way, way, way above German Bund, for instance. They should be somewhere in the middle of the two. They're now the highest of the three, and I think that's not all of it, of course, because there's huge supply coming from the government, but an unfortunate amount of it could have been avoided if the bank had been acted with due diligence and care, basically. 
Mm. Um, Marcus, you don't need to worry about the Bank of England not getting their fair share of blame on this podcast. They they definitely get it. But listen, let's pose this question in a slightly different way. You said at the beginning of this conversation that you weren't convinced that uh, QE, Q2 had any effect on money supply in the first place. Now, let's go back to the type of QE that we used during the pandemic. So we called that, didn't we? We called it people's QE. And then instead of getting bunged up in the banking system, the money went directly into people's pockets. And I don't think anyone could argue that that did not affect money supply because it obviously did. So we had this massive increase in money supply via people's QE, shoving money directly into people's pockets and then sending them out to spend it into an environment where the supply chain was in trouble already. Now, If you go back to all of our careful studies of um, MMT, modern monetary theory, and uh, how one deals with inflation under that scenario, the answer is to say, oh, look, we gave people too much money. There's a big pile of inflation. Tell you what, let's go for people's QT. And that means shoving up income taxes suddenly and dramatically. Now, wouldn't that be the correct, this is another question we had, by the way, a correct way to deal with inflation that has been driven by people's QE would be to shove up taxes, effectively people's QT. Right. I don't really understand. There's no such thing as people's QT. I just I mean, made that up, Marcus. <laughs> I just made it up to know, bring up but... an opposite to uh, people's QE. <laughs> the, 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 the Bank of England, made, you know, they actually don't do the best uh, academic work on this. By raising the size of the balance sheet with an asset and against the liability, that doesn't necessarily increase the money supply. The money supply only increases, or money is only created, when a bank, as in a commercial bank, lends money to a corporate or an individual and creates money. The Bank of England itself, by buying bonds, isn't creating money. It's just widening the size of its balance sheet, which has a knock-on effect, which you all know. But it's very hard to sort of quantify that. Nonetheless, um, you know, they have uh, over £800 billion worth of assets sitting on the balance sheet. There is obviously going to have a knock-on effect. You know, it's just very hard to put it into clear and simple um, terms. But, you know, as far as sorting out, um, you know, the money supply, that is a separate dynamic, I think. Okay. John, surely putting up taxes sharply would deal with inflation in the short term. I mean, I don't think it's, well, I don't think it's that straightforward, but more I just don't think the politics or the, I mean, there there are so many uh, reasons not to do that. You can't just change the tax regime on uh, the same way that you can change the interest rate regime because that's kind of, it's it's a distributional issue. So it's, well, actually, wait a minute, we need to figure out who has actually benefited from, you know, the, the kind of asset inflation so the idea that you should stick, you know, the highest rate of income tax up by 5%, say, every time inflation gets out of hand is just untenable as a as a policy. It would increase inflation. You know, if you want to... First thing, if you, for instance, you put up VAT, that hits inflation straight away, as it would on income tax. So I don't think... But, I mean, modern monetary theory is neither modern nor monetary because it's fiscal and it's not theory either. But, I mean... <laughs> The whole idea of, of of just whacking out taxes, but it's an interesting point because that addresses the fiscal side of, of, of the economy. All the Bank of England is doing is funding the monetary side. And I think the answers that you seem to come up here are very much more a fiscal thing. And that requires the government to do something, not the Bank of England. 
Okay, Marcus, thank you so much for that. John, I'm going to leave you with the duty of getting in touch with all the people who wrote the MMT books and explaining to them that everything <laughs> they wrote was absolute, complete and total nonsense. Uh, so that's your job. Hate mail on that one. All to John, please. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, another thing we've had a lot of questions on is this idea of whether one should hold Bitcoin or gold over a 10-year period. And some of you find it really irritating that I ask all of our uh, guests this at the end of their interviews. And some of you find it unbelievably irritating that every single guest replies gold, quite rightly, uh, by the way. Uh, one day someone will say Bitcoin and then you can all write in and complain about that. But for now, it's always gold. Now, we're going to talk about something else today. Well, a little bit something else. We're going to add a third part into the question. And with us to talk about this is Bloomberg's Eddie Spence. Now, Eddie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to ask you the original question first. If I were to ask you, and obviously as a Bloomberg person, you can't necessarily have opinions. So I'm not asking you for an opinion as such, just for, you know, an opinion. If you were to have either gold or Bitcoin for 10 years, which one would it be? It probably depends uh, how much you're putting in and how much money you have. Like, honestly, if it's, you know, 1% No, you, have, you haven't got anything else. You haven't got anything got nothing else. else. You have nothing else. Well, in that else. case, yeah, I would, um, yeah, I would, I would probably, probably opt for gold in that situation because I'm pretty confident that in 10 years, gold isn't going to be worth zero. Whereas with Bitcoin, there is like that tail risk, I suppose, that you could lose everything you have. I mean, personally, you know, I know people who... Uh, got into Bitcoin like during that kind of crazy time in uh, 2021, I think it was, and you know it's still underwater. Um, with gold, you may or may not be underwater, but your losses probably aren't going to be that big uh, if you hold it over 10 years. You know, no matter really at which point you get in, um, at least in absolute terms. Mm. I suppose the way we can look at it is to say that in 10 years, it is it is as close to an absolute certainty as anything has ever been that gold will still exist. And that certainty simply doesn't exist with, with Bitcoin. It may well not exist at all. Okay, so you're with the rest of our, our listeners, and that's great. So we won't get any complaints on that, or maybe we will. I don't know. So now I'm going to add in another element. Are you ready? This is like a game show, okay? If I added in a savings account to that, so over the next 10 years, you can either hold gold, Bitcoin, or a standard UK savings account currently yielding about half the rate of inflation, right? So you can probably get 4% at the moment. And who knows what's going to happen then next. So you now have the choice of these three things. And just to repeat, you are not allowed anything else at all. Only one of these three things. Would you choose a savings account? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Mostly based because of the framing of the question, right? If, if it is all your money, I'm not sure anyone 
anywhere would suggest making a portfolio 100% gold just because there's no kind of absolute law that gold has to rise um, over the long term. You know, I mean, there's plenty of situations we could pick going back, you know, say uh, if you went long gold uh, with everything you had in around, you know, the previous price peak, you would only just about coming back above water now. Whereas with a savings account, you know, the, the yield is kind of guaranteed, you know, you're not really necessarily going long anything, right? You know, I, I would say that kind of punting around with money in that way is not necessarily the best thing to do um, if, if it is indeed 100% of your wealth. And plus, there's some quite odd things going on in the gold market right now that I think, you know, for people who have kind of conventional ideas about the way gold is supposed to work, you know, they could kind of come a cropper um, if, if they're kind of not aware of them. Oh, Eddie, what are these things? Well, the main one is that we have central banks kind of around the world, but mostly located in developing markets. Um, you know, we're talking China, Russia, um, some Arab nations, and, you know, a few others are buying up gold um, at a pretty strong rate right now and have been doing so for about a year. And, you know, you probably thinking, well, why Why is this something that I need to be worried about? Well, the reason is, is because gold is currently trading far higher than normal models of the way we would kind of model it suggest. And I mean, it's a very hard thing to model, basically, all we because there's no you know cash flow or anything like that. So what we normally do is just say, well, look, how does gold move normally when we look at these other kind of macro variables like the dollar, um, treasury yields? It's trading way above that. And the reason is, is because central banks are buying a lot of it. If they stop, then gold could really, really quickly return to earth. And then, depending on the way you see the kind of world economy doing, do pretty much nothing for a really long time, um, as it did after the financial crisis. You know, we had that run up and then it went down and then did nothing for years and years. So you're just going to basically be sitting on a loss, hoping for you know the next, um, the next global calamity to happen. Yeah, I get that. But I suppose the one thing you could say about gold is that it does have this very long-term history of maintaining its purchasing power uh, relative to inflation. So it always holds its real value over the long term. Whereas if you look at a savings account today, you've been losing money in real terms on a savings account for many, many years now. And if we are moving into a world of financial oppression, as discussed on this podcast previously by uh, our interviews with uh, Russell Napier and various others, if we're moving into an environment where we tend to, over the long term, see uh, interest rates significantly below inflation. Over a decade, at the end of the decade, you may look at your savings account and go, oh, that's not what I had in mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, and if that is indeed the, the macro kind of backdrop that we're going to be um, getting accustomed to over the next 10 years, then, you know, gold, in theory, should perform very well um, in those circumstances. It is a pretty fickle asset, though. I mean, you know, I, I'm reminded of when um, it was before a, a Senate committee, Ben Bernanke, you know, at the time when he was the Federal Reserve president, said himself that I don't really know why gold prices move. You know, it has a it has a tendency to do quite odd things. And one thing I should say is this conception that gold always retains its value with inflation is not necessarily true. And the reason we have this conception that it does it is we look at the long term price chart and see that generally it kind of goes up in these you know, or rise and then come down a bit and hit a plateau and go up again. If you actually look at the price of gold adjusted for inflation, you know, as we tend to think about cash adjusted for inflation, it's not really a fantastic long-term asset. I mean, if you adjust for inflation, the peak gold price is still back in the post-inflation era in the, the 70s, 80s. Um, we, we've never actually retained that peak if you adjust for inflation. So it, it, that's definitely something people need to be aware of. 
Are you going to take the savings account or are you going to take the gold? I mean, I'm not offering them to you, by the way, if you go and get them oh, yourself. No, but it's not, not actually a game show. Um, which, which one would you take? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting question because at first we get it and you think, right, well, I mean, a savings account is always going to return you money in nominal terms. So, you know, my immediate instinct is, well, we shouldn't be comparing savings accounts to, you know, gold or Bitcoin. But when you then think about it, the, the real question is, in 10 years' time, do you think that you can rely more on the underlying value of sterling? Or, in fact, a more interesting question is perhaps, would you take a savings account in US dollars or the pound or maybe even another currency of your choice or gold or Bitcoin? And then I think that does become a question of, well, what do you think is the most reliable form of money, basically? And from that point of view... The only thing that would make me think twice about gold is that question of the 10-year time horizon because I definitely, I take Eddie's point that gold is possibly expensive relative in, in as much as it's ever possible to value it, it's probably more towards the expensive end of its spectrum than it is towards the cheaper end of its spectrum. And so I think if the macro picture does end up not going gold's way, then maybe I would sit there and think, well, actually, I'd be better locking into a dollar or a sterling because I can probably fix for five years at about a 5% yield just now, you know, and then and then kind of know that it was going to be, you know, it might have lost its value in real terms in 10 years' time, but I think both those currencies will still be here in 10 years, uh, whereas I definitely couldn't say that for Bitcoin. I would, if it was like 100 years, I would definitely say gold. It's more that question of actually in a decade, I, I'm not sure what will have lost or retained its value better um, at this point. I mean, I probably would still say gold, but I'd struggle a bit more. I'd have to think harder. And I don't like no, thinking harder. We don't, we don't hard. want that. No, no, that's bad. absolutely don't want that. And listen, I, I can give you a lot of things, John, but I can't give you 100 years. Um, <laughs> Wait, what, would you, what would you do at this point? Well, it, 10 years is such a tricky one, isn't it? Mm. Because in the shorter term... I would probably take the savings account because yeah. if you look at our interview with uh, Mervyn King last week and you look at all the um, people now picking up that interview and looking at money supply, et cetera, you begin to see that going into the next couple of years, deflation has become a genuine risk. So the the all very low inflation anyway. So our conversations around financial repression and around uh, interest rates being significantly lower than inflation, there may be a period coming up where suddenly that 4%, 4.5% you can get on your account looks pretty good. And I was looking through, uh, you know, my accounts, I'm getting perfectly good rate on my on my national savings. With my wealth manager, I'm getting uh, on my cash, I'm getting just below the base rate. So, you know, 4, 4.5%, is, is not an out there rate to be getting right now. And if you see inflation coming down as fast as we think it will, you and I unexpectedly fast for most people, that's going to look pretty good. But over 10 years, it's much more likely that the financial repression environment that uh, Russell Napier speaks about so, so uh, brilliantly will happen. So I think over a decade, I'd probably end up going gold, but quite uncertainly, not not with a, a, a sort of very um, a, a deep degree of certainty, which of course, as you know, is unusual for me. Now, before we go any further, I just want to ask you two one thing, one thing. Here's a wild card chucked in for you. Silver. What about silver? Now, that's been performing very interestingly recently, and we get lots of questions about why don't you all talk about silver, which is operates not just as a long-term currency, but also as an industrial metal and has all sorts of other elements to it. So if you're going to talk about gold, 
you can't not talk about silver. Um, Eddie, is it too much to ask you to add silver into that mix? Uh, sure, yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch uh, silver with a barge pole with my own <laughs> personal savings. Not because, okay. um, not because it's you know inherently a, a bad investment, but just because gold is a lot more volatile than um, when we look at currencies against each other. Uh, gold tends to be a lot more volatile than that, and silver is a hell of a lot more volatile than gold. You know, I mean, literally. Um, week to week, month to month, you could be looking at kind of double digit swings in the value of your savings in absolute terms, which, you know, frankly, if it was, if it was everything I own, I, I wouldn't be particularly happy about that. I don't think. Um, and also, I mean, it's just gold, relatively speaking, is, is pretty easy for us to kind of think about in terms of what we think about macro variables with silver. There's a lot of very idiosyncratic stuff going on that. You know, I would not want to be having to try and keep track of, um, you know, week to week uh, if, you know, it was my entire net worth. So, but, you know, it has a lot of very passionate fans who I, I'm sure will kind of follow this up. Um, but yeah, it's a dangerous game to play. Yeah. Questions and comments on silver. Do please send them in and we will we will uh, maybe do a little more on silver and gold together at the uh, in the autumn. Uh, John, I added silver in. Would you also not touch it with a barge pole? I think the best line I've ever heard about silver was Sebastian Lyon. At one of the of Troy at one of the uh, conferences that we had years ago, and he said, and Sebastian's quite uh you know comes across very soberly and seriously. He's a steady and guy. He's, he's a, a steady, steady guy, guy. and yeah. and he turned down and he said, "Silver is is gold on crack," and I just thought, <laughs> okay, if you're saying that, then you know it kind of just goes to show. I mean, it's, I think it's it's a lot of fun. But the other thing, I mean, Dominic Frisby, um, who's also a, like an old friend of ours, always used to say that. It's like this kind of, you know, this this friend, school friend you had that had loads of potential and they were going to go everywhere. And then you know, one day you come across them kind of wandering around the park without a bottle and a plastic bag and it's kind of, it's going nowhere. <laughs> uh, so, no, it's Poor a very... Old silver. <laughs> it's Poor a strange silver. asset. It's a strange asset. Yeah. Um, and I should just tell you, by the way, that the uh, Edinburgh Fringe is coming up and Dominic will be performing there. So if you're in Edinburgh, he's always, he's always very funny. And John and I will be performing as well, won't we, John? We will, and we are very funny. We, we are very funny, and we're only on for two days, and 70% uh, of the tickets are sold already, so get out there and buy them if you want them. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us today. That was absolutely great, really interesting, and I think, once again, we do not have a Bitcoin fan. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Our next question is a theme that we have touched on before that we're going to keep touching on and that is incredibly important for all our financial futures, active versus passive. So the question is, are passive funds like Vanguard, I think he means such as, by the way, 
are passive funds such as Vanguard 100% equity still a good idea or not? Now, here to discuss this with us, first time on the show, thank you, Joe, is Stocks reporter Joe Easton. Let's just start with a yes or a no. Um, I think no is my answer. Oh, okay. That's not what I expected. That is not what I expected. I thought you were going to come on as a a fan of passive and John was going to have to explain to you why you were wrong. Actually, I was quite confused as that because I quite like passive. So now now we do. I'm quite interested in people. Okay, cool. (laughs) Would you like me to start this whole thing all over again? Um, no, I mean, I don't think they are good, but I'm happy to, to thrash it out. And, okay, and great. That, Ex- yeah. Explain to me. So well, you, yeah, are, you, you are a fan in this stage of the market of active investing over passive. Explain to us I why. I am, definitely. Yeah. So I think that the main reason to invest in a passive fund essentially was, firstly, because of the fees are so low. So you don't really pay um, a fancy analyst who's got a job title as a fund manager to, to pick stocks um, so the fees at Vanguard have always been very low or almost zero the other reason to own a passive fund is because essentially everything's going up so just follow the market higher a lot of that everything's going up kind of trend was in growth stocks but given that interest rates have obviously readjusted in the way they have the growth element of the market is essentially no longer there and given, well, despite the fact that in the past three or four months, the market has rebounded pretty strongly, there, in my eyes, is not much legs to the market recovery. And I think if you put your money in a, in a passive tracker fund, you're essentially going to see your money almost stay at the same level for the next two years. I don't see much upside in stocks. And I would rather put my money in a 4% interest rate paying deposit account in a bank and leave it there for the next two years. That's my view on it. Okay, so that, that's, that's not even that's not even liking active investing. That's just not liking investing. Yeah, I would I would also I would add to that my active view. So I, I think that you can invest in a good active fund because I think it is more of a stock picker's world for all the reasons that I just said. And you need to really dig deeper to find decent stocks. And there are good passive funds that do that. And I would much rather have my money in a passive fund with good stock pickers behind it. An than active, something sorry, like an active, active yeah. fund with good stock pickers sorry, behind I'm it. Sorry, I'm getting my, my terminology mixed up That's there completely. Right. <laughs> now, this know. is really interesting because this has always been my big gripe with passive funds is that if you invest passively, there's no such thing, by the way, there's no such thing as passive because every every choice is active, right? Um, so someone's making the decision somewhere. So there's no such thing as purely passive investing. But the majority of the choices are to be a momentum investor. And if you tell someone who is a passive only investor that they are effectively a momentum investor, that's kind of shocking for them. And the momentum recently, over the last decade or so, has been behind long duration stocks. And so that's why passive has looked so successful. Momentum has really worked. But momentum investing, actually, it has a great record over the very long term, but it doesn't always work. And it looks like this coming environment will not be a good one for momentum investors. That would be my take on it. You know, the the stocks that have been successful over the last decade are not going to be the ones that are successful over the next decade. Um, Obviously, been proven wrong so far this year and will probably continue to be proven wrong, but (laughs) that's the way I see it. And if that's the case, the last thing you want to be is a momentum investor. And if you are a passive investor, you are a momentum investor. John? I mean, I I agree. I think that's a really 
reasonable take. And, and oddly, I'm slightly thrown here because I, I think um, we've, overall we probably don't really particularly disagree here. But I think the one thing I would say about passive versus active is that if you're going to choose to have your money in, say, you know, the S&P 500, then it then comes down to, well, what, what instrument are you going to choose to invest in that? So a lot of it kind of comes down to, it's not exactly terminology, but for example, actually tell you what, I took, the, the reader specifically said the Vanguard 100% equity fund, and I looked at it because I assumed that it would be basically a global tracker. So I thought, right, so like 70% of this is going to be in US stocks because that's what the global tracker looks like. And actually it's structured differently to that. It's like a full 25% is in UK equities, 50% is in the US, and you get 5% in Japan, 9% emerging markets, and about 11% in Europe, ex-UK. And that's not to say, I'm not making a judgment as to whether that's a good mix or not. But the point is that's actually, in terms of compared to a global tracker, that's quite an active set of asset allocation because they're heavily overweight the UK, heavily underweight the US, heavily underweight Japan, actually, in global terms. Um, and also you haven't got very much in EM. So I suppose it's, it's this problem when we talk about passive versus active. It's like, well, how passive is that really? And then when you're talking about active managers and the track record versus passive, even in bear markets, they don't, on average be passive so you do have to have confidence that you're able to choose a good active manager and we've discussed this before and we do tend to conclude that well if you go in an investment trust and you know that that's usually a riper kind of like uh, you know hunting ground for decent active or rather it's a it's a structure that enables active managers to make the most of their best ideas so i do believe that there's room for active management but i think this question about the timing is perhaps, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a red herring. It's you know, also interesting, isn't it, when you, when there's a lot of, um, as with everything, slightly depends how you do the numbers. So you can say that mm. the average active fund regularly underperforms the average passive fund. But of course, the average passive fund must, by definition, underperform the market, right? Because after fees, it's going to underperform the market. And if you, instead of going for the average active fund by the number of active funds, but by the weight of assets in active funds, you can often come out with a very, very different answer because the most successful active funds with the highest AUM, et cetera, uh, very often do outperform. So it slightly depends how you do the numbers. There's no, no real black and white here. But Joe, I'm really interested in this idea that you would take a savings account because our last question was about whether one would take Bitcoin, gold, or a savings account over a 10-year period. And I'm getting the feeling you might be on the savings account side there. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take Bitcoin. That's 100%. We can remove that one from the... Uh, <laughs> Everyone not, yeah. does. Um, yeah, no, fair enough. It's not exactly a contrarian um, view. But um, yeah, no, I think that the... I think a 4% interest rate account looks pretty... Well, it's kind of thing, I guess. My parents would probably tell me to invest in because it is quite steady and stable. But um, I think it looks pretty attractive, really. And also, I know people that I do know lots of people that have invested in um, tracker funds, even Vanguard tracker funds. And, and I think they are missing out on 4% every whenever on, on, the, on their money. And it's waiting for that to recover. And I just think. Um, yeah, I think there is uh, there's a lot of attractiveness in that. 
All right, but Joe, listen, what we're hearing here is you're a yield guy. You're clearly a yield guy. You'll do anything for 4%, right? <laughs> anything. So I am. If I, I am. see what's coming. <laughs> I was out there looking for my 4%, my solid 4% every year over the long term. You know where I'd go? UK where? equities. I'd be just diving into the FTSE 100. Whoa, 4%. Yeah, that's low over the there. UK. I mean, this is, this is what you want. Get your 4% in and... You've got a possibility of capital gain there as well. How much better is that than sticking your money with NatWest? Just saying. It's good. Yeah, it is good. Um, I do have, coincidentally, I do bank with NatWest, but... Um, <laughs> I, I know it's if John and I banked with NatWest, we'd have been chucked out by now, I should think. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I think UK stocks is, you know... It, Everyone says about them obviously being cheap, but then it's only obviously cheap if it goes up again, because if it doesn't go up, then it wasn't cheap. It was just um, low priced and, and not a very good buy. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not really convinced on UK equities. Obviously, the FTSE 100, the old classic thing about international exposure, etc. Um, some of that probably is pretty, pretty solid. But yeah, if we're talking domestic stocks, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't touch that with a barge pole okay. for the minute. A yield guy, but not a value trap guy. Yeah. Um, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Really thank appreciate you. it. And how nice to have um, all of us agreeing that active might be better than passive over the next decade. The next decade's got a lot of work to do, hasn't it? <laughs> Thanks, yeah, Joe. I think they're still in a job, aren't they? The, the active managers, I think. For a final question, and kind of a fun one to get you going for the summer, it's this. Just to mix it up, could you tell us what your favorite finance-related books and films are? And we are told that we can't choose each other's books, and we also can't choose Adam Smith. They're a tough lot, aren't they, John? They are. We're, yeah. we're, you know, this is free. We need to get some revenue. So let, let me promote my own, my own book. Yeah, John <laughs> and I are not going to recommend each other's books, but just to be clear, we have written them, and you can go look them up. And also, just to be clear, we both love Adam Smith, but no one ever reads Adam Smith. You know, we do this show, which I, I mentioned earlier in the show at the festival, where we ask people. It's an Adam Smith show, right? Everyone who comes is supposedly an Adam Smith fun and a fan. And we ask people if they've ever read Wealth of Nations, etc. And uh, almost no one ever puts up their hands. And whenever anyone does, you can find out pretty quickly they haven't read it by just asking them a few key questions. So. We love Adam Smith, but I'm pretty sure that John's never read Wealth of Nations from beginning to end. John, have you? No, I haven't. No. Three okay. moral sentiments I did. Did that's, you? That's my claim to fame. Yeah. The whole thing. It's not read as the long, whole is thing. It? It's, at it's a, a bit wordy. At university, presumably. No, you know, believe it or not. I the Bible at university. Very wordy. Right. Now, we, <laughs> <laughs> we, we asked around the newsroom. And we asked people what their favorite finance-related books are. So let me give you a couple. Uh, Simon Kennedy, Misbehaving by Richard Thaler. That's a really good one, actually. Uh, Anna Edwards, A World Without Work uh, by Daniel Suskind. Is that how you say that? Suskind? Suskind? Don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Neil Neil Callanan, who we've had on the, the podcast before. Now, he's, he sent us a long list. Money Men by Dan McCrum. I like that one. Barbarians at the Gate. Very popular. Everyone's read that. The Man Who Solved the Market, Gregory Zuckerman, The Cult of We, We Work and the Great Startup Delusion. Oh, I don't know. I think that would just irritate me so much. I'm not sure I can bring myself to read it. Um, John, what are your favourites? Uh, actually, my, my favourite book is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Oh, I love that. It's so good. So good. It's like Mark yeah. Twain writing about the stock market and yeah. such a glamorous era. And, uh, and also, but the things, if you read it, then you have to look up what actually happened to Jesse Livermore 
because it's it's the kind of book that gets you enthused about the idea of being like a kind of daring do stock market trader um whereas his wider life is basically a massive tragic cautionary tale um i mean i'd love to do a, a more in-depth podcast about him i keep occasionally nudge someone and say oh we need to do one of these like netflix serial documentary type ones because jesse livermore's an endlessly fascinating character but yeah to, to be honest i think that's that's probably the one i go back to more than any other finance book yeah no that's a good one i'm going to chuck in there anatomy of a of the bear by russell napier it's an oldie but a oh, goodie good. and, and he's one of our favorite writers. it's such a good book uh, he's written uh, other books more recently but that's a that's his standout i think now i want to ask about movies i haven't seen the barbie movie yet john have you seen the barbie movie yet i hate to say i haven't no but I'm, I'd be really interested to see that, and I wonder if that's the kind of movie that will tell us a lot about finance, because one of the things I always thought about Barbie is how extraordinary she was as a toy, a woman with her own house, her own horse box, <laughs> her own pickup truck, her own everything, you know? So there's a behind the doll, there's a hell of a career paying for all this stuff. Is that a portfolio career, I believe? Uh, I don't know. I'd like to have a look at her money management, but I suspect that that's not what we're after today. I don't know if our audience are going to watch that kind of thing. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back on the 8th of September, but keep an eye on the podcast feed for any bonus episodes we might drop because you never know, we might just do that. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset-Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Joe Easton, Marcus Ashworth, and Eddie Spence. And of course, John Steffek. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. Link in the show notes. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.